0: Amen. Man, I love that song. He will not abandon his promise, and we will not forget his promise to save. Thank you guys so much for leading us. Good morning. I've missed y'all. It is so good to see everybody. How is everybody doing this morning? You guys doing all right? Good. Well, I believe most of you are aware, aware, uh, but for those of you that might be guests or visitors today, uh, I've been gone for the last two weeks, uh, missing the last two Sundays as my family... I had a wonderful adventure to China to finalize the adoption of uh, the newest member of our family, our sweet little boy David Wu Smith, and it was the trip of a lifetime. And that's that's my little my little crew right there, man. And I can't tell you how proud I am of all three of those amazing kids, James, Annabelle, and, and we we've named him David Wu. We're calling him Wu, um, but just I just sat back and marveled at all of them for the last two weeks. It's it's been incredible, and, and I'm grateful for all that God has shown me over the last couple of weeks. I appreciate y'all's love and support. Um, it's good to be home, and it, it's really great to be here. Now, I am flying solo today. Uh, I'm, I'm on my own because we got in on Thursday, late Thursday evening, and so we've been battling the fierce um, ramifications of jet lag. Okay, and so if you have not gone through jet lag, you're missing out on one of life's greatest gifts. I can just tell you, there's nothing like waking up at 1:30 in the morning with all alertness, and then wanting to fall asleep in your lunch later that day. I mean, it is so brutal. And I actually had some apprehension about having uh, this sermon today, knowing that this would be my first jet lagged sermon, um, and the exhaustion and tiredness that I would feel. But then I thought, you know, a lot of people fall asleep during sermons. So what's the big deal? <laughs> If I do it, you know, and so if you see me kind of drifting off, just give me a good strong amen and I'll get rolling again, okay? Um, but, but it has been great. Jet lag is, is a beat down, okay? Like we're, we're really fighting it. But I'll also tell you, as great as this trip was, and I love travel, it reminds me of some of the other inconveniences that you encounter when you go on traveling and, and some of the things that I, I just absolutely hate. And I mean that word hate, okay? I hate luggage, okay? I, I have just this disdain Now, I didn't know it was possible to have such animosity towards things that you owned until somebody told you to put them in some sort of 40, 50-pound compartment and get them on the other side of the world. But it it is brutal, okay? And and there are all these different reasons for it. Let me kind of elaborate on that for a second. When I was younger and we'd go on a trip, it was pretty remarkable because I was little and you would wake up and you would leave that day and you would see this bag that just magically appeared and amazingly, it had all your stuff in it. You know, it had everything you needed, had your shoes, had your clothes. And then when you would come home from your trip, there was the bag again. And It was just filled, miraculously. And then all of a sudden, I get older, and my mom says those fateful words, Jeremiah, pack your own bag. Right? And so ever since then, I've kind of developed this obsession with being a master packer. Okay, here's how I define a master packer. It's you you developed the skill to avoid overpacking and underpacking, right? It's kind of like the Goldilocks of packing. It's not too much, not too little. It's just right you know and because we've all hated those experiences you go on a trip and you've overpacked and you start going through your stuff and you're like why did I think I needed eight sweaters you know and, and it's just created this bulkiness or the, the more difficult scenario where you didn't pack enough and you're sitting there and you've run out of shirts and you're like can I re-wear this one no okay I need to go buy one and, and so you want to avoid that and so like I have like this pride I kind of celebrate if I go through a trip and I hit the exact number of articles of clothing it's like just this sense of self fulfillment. And so that's what I strive for. But that is an impossibility when you go on a trip like I just went on. And it was impossible for a couple of reasons. One was we had multiple cities that we were going to. In one city, the temperature was going to be freezing and below freezing. And then the other was 60 and 70. So you had to pack for multiple climates. And so you had coats and swimsuits. And that just compounds things. I mean, it makes it very difficult. And you start trending towards the overpacking tendencies. In addition to that, we were going to be gone for 14 days. And so there was part of me that wanted to surrender the whole desire to have the perfect amount and just kind of cave in and be like, man, I'm only going to pack for seven days. I'll figure out a way to do laundry. That made me nervous. So I still tried to pack for the full two weeks. And it just, it just becomes a snowball effect. And one of the things that really contributes to overpacking is that you're going internationally. And you start to have this thought. You're like, well, gosh, the last thing I want to have happen is to be in China and not have X, Y, and Z, you know, and so this really is um, accentuated when you get to the realm of like medicine, right, because apparently people don't get sick in China, right, they don't have medicine in China if something happens, so you think of every illness and symptom imaginable, and before you know it, you've packed a small pharmacy to go with you, and you have all this stuff, okay, and now what makes this difficult is you've overpacked, and we completely overpacked for our trip, but then you wake up the day that you have to leave, And and there's this pressure, right? It's like you're running a race because you know you've got to get from point A to point B. You've got to do it in a certain amount of time. If you don't, you're going to have all these complications. And so you gather all your stuff and you try to make it as seamless and expedient as possible. And the luggage companies really try to help with this. They create these wonderful bags now that have wheels and handles and all this cool stuff. That's just there to distract you from the fact that once you get to the airport, you're going to have to unpack and repack in some capacity, and they make sure that it's going to happen, right? One way is that when you check in and you do your checked bags, if you've exceeded the weight limit, right, they're like, well, I'm sorry, you're over the weight limit, and they charge you, what, $2 million to ship it over the weight limit, and so then you've got to repack there. Now, if you dodge that, security will get you, right? And they they love to do it in a painful way in slow process of making you unpack their bags right you you go through and and at first it's technology anybody got a laptop got to unpack it got an ipad got to unpack you got a phone you got to unpack you got a belt on you got shoes you got to take it all off man and you just start to to disrobe and you start to unpack and then sure enough it goes to the conveyor belt and the one thing you forget right pocket knife or that that tube of liquid that's 4.3 ounces instead of 3.4 ounces they see it and then they announce to everybody whose bag is this shamefully raise your hand. It's mine. And what do they do? They take it over here to this counter. And what do they do? They unpack it. One by one, right? All these things that you put in there. Yeah, what is this? Swab it. Nope, not explosive. Swab it. Nope, not explosive. But they just keep going. They find the one battery that's a threat to everyone's safety. They throw it away. And do they repack it for you? No, they just hand it back over to you in there. And you're trying to reassemble it. And because this has all happened, now you show up to your gate late. And everybody else is already on the plane. And so now you get to walk down this small aisle with this huge carry-on bag, and you're hitting people in the shoulders, and they're judging you for being an overpacker, and you've run out of all the overhead compartment space. And so they say, oh, but there's this one crevice towards the back. You can put it there. So now you get the joy of having to wait for everybody to deplane before you have to go back. This is all hypothetical, by the way. And, And you finally get it there. You land at your destination. Because it's international, you just get to go through the whole process all over again. Right, because you get to go through customs. It is a colossal beatdown. Okay, Now, I will tell you, as a former missions pastor, I was able to adapt to all these little challenges. And I got to a place where I really kind of knew how to mitigate some of these challenges. But what made this trip different was I wasn't traveling alone. Right, All those other trips, I was by myself. I mean, I had other people with me, but I didn't have to pack their bags. I didn't have to worry about their carry-ons. But, but this time, I was going with my family. And and that meant I felt this certain pressure, the certain responsibility. Now I would love to tell you that traveling with your family through these circumstances, you go with such grace and such patience, and you speak to each other with such kindness when you're going through this. But it's really more like you've gone into combat. That's really what it's like. And you're getting out of the car, and you're like, James, grab the suitcase. Annabelle, get that backpack. Jennifer, you got the we got a suitcase down. Who left that one over there? And you just panicked all the time. So you go through this. Now imagine going through all of that. And then someone hands you a baby, and you get to do it again, right? I mean, it is brutal, okay? So I hate luggage, but I will tell you that part of the reasons I hate it is because I had to take my family with me, and we had all these different bags and everything, but that being said, with all the inconveniences that came, with having more people to be responsible for, part of what made this trip such a trip of a lifetime is I wasn't alone. I can't tell you how many times I've gone on trips like this without thought, man, if they were just here with me. Every memory, every moment, every story, and having the chance to share those experiences with someone else is what made it so remarkable. And I can't tell you how many times my family got together over the course of the last two weeks as we were taking it all in, and we would look at each other and we'd say, you know, y'all, this wasn't possible in just doing this on our own. All the family back home, the loved ones, the church, and the friends, this was something that could only take place through the help of others. And we never had this sense that we were doing it on our own. We always sensed that it was something what made it greater, that we were part of a larger community, a part of a larger story. And that's part of what made it so remarkable. And I share that with you this morning, because that, to me, is, is really kind of the undercurrent for the day's message, this theme that I really feel like God wants each of us to hear, this amazing truth of the gospel that reminds us that loneliness has been defeated no matter what we face no matter the inconveniences the the obstacles the challenges we are no longer alone and that truth needs to be celebrated and we want to celebrate it today amen so let's do that through preparing our hearts through prayer and asking God to reveal his truth and accompany us with his spirit as we proclaim his words would you bow your head and pray with me father in heaven we love you and we're so grateful for the opportunity to, to, again, just hear of these promises of old. And that they would be the anchor to which we cling to, the foundation of our lives. And I pray that each and every one of us that needs to be reminded of that today, Father, that you would help us hear it anew. And that you would awaken us and stir us in a way that only you can. So, Father, enrich us now. Let us not forget your promise to save. Let us not forget your promise to save to never leave us alone, and may we celebrate it in a fullness and glory that brings to you the name and recognition you deserve. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, we've got a lot to cover today. Let me begin by first offering a public word of appreciation to both Brian Briscoe and Warren Etheridge for filling in. Uh, for me in my absence, I really appreciate the faithful teaching of these men and just their ability to come and encourage the church with with God's word. It's a great comfort that those guys and many other wonderful teachers that we can call upon whenever I have to to leave or not be with you on a Sunday. So truly appreciate them and their efforts. I know you all were encouraged by them as well. Now, a couple of weeks ago, before I left, a week before I left, we started this new series that we're we'll referring to as promises, and it's taken us through the early chapters of Genesis. And when you think of Genesis, a lot of times you think about creation, you think about origins, but what we really wanted to, to challenge ourselves with was thinking through the promises that serve as a backdrop to this story of humanity, right? And all these foundational promises that point to the ideals of redemption, And so in that introductory message, we talked about how one of the promises that we see in the early pages of Genesis is that God brings beauty out of chaos. And we we keep referring back to that and seeing that. You you can see it through creation itself and the beauty with each day and and with each unfolding. Or you see it with the creation of being made in the image of God. Well, we're going to continue on that trajectory today. And today we get to look at a passage that takes us to the creation of woman, of Eve, and, and before we get into this text today, I want to offer what I would consider to be a pretty important disclaimer about the expectations for this message. Um, here's the thing. When you read this passage of Genesis 2, 18 through 25, there's a lot of controversial subjects that can emerge from these texts, conversations that center around Men and women and their relationship with one another, conversations about marriage and how it's defined, a lot of things that are incredibly important that you can unearth and really chew on in this text. And so there's a natural tendency for us to expect to really dive into that today, and we will address some of those things, but I want you to have the appropriate expectation of how we're going to, to seek that out. Um, we're going to talk about it, but there, there are other things I want to emphasize, and I want to explain to you why. Number one, just to be very candid with you, um, those issues are so important and so critical to understanding. Um, I was a little hesitant of my ability to be as prepared and ready for today's message, given the trip that I' had just gone on. thinking about being gone for two weeks, thinking about adjusting to uh, adoption and all those other things, I, I didn't feel like I could give the sort of credibility and thoroughness that some of those questions really deserve that I felt like I needed to be mindful of the manner in which I would have to be speaking today. And and that's just me being candid. And so that was one thing that made me be very uh, sensitive in how I was approaching the study of this text. But in addition to that, I was thinking about context. Um, Those questions are so important that it reminded me of a larger dialogue that's really taken place within the church staff and the ordination committee, where we've been talking about we need to create space to have more intentional dialogue about our core theological beliefs as believers and as a church, right, we need to create opportunities to discuss these things in a meaningful way that goes beyond just a 30 to 40 minute monologue. And, and we need to have an opportunity to dialogue about it in a meaningful way because guess what? Not all of us agree. Is that a shock, right? It's not, not uncommon for people to read through a passage and come away with different interpretations. And so how do we best create that space? Well, here's what we're gonna be doing this year. Starting in March, we're gonna pick one Sunday a month I think, we're gonna, I think we said uh, the first Sunday, but if I'm wrong on that, blame jet lag. But I think it's the first Sunday of the month. We're going to come back in the evenings, and we're going to create an opportunity to talk about these key theological matters. Uh, Trinity, heaven, hell, gender, marriage, these key theological beliefs, and we want to create space where it can be more of a dialogue, where there can be questions, where there can be other people that can come in and help inform those things. I feel like that is a much healthier environment to have this sort of discussion. So that's coming. So that was the other reason I I wanted you all to know that we are going to talk about those things in greater detail, but I feel like they're better served if we talk about it in a slightly different context. The third reason uh, we won't go as in-depth into it today is because if we start talking about some of these issues, let's be honest that we all have certain tendencies to have a certain belief, um, perspective, uh, bias, if you will, of how we might interpret this passage, and this is a natural thing to do. It's controversial issues, there are subjects, we have previous uh, experiences in life that kind of inform our understanding of these things, and so we tend to project those tendencies or those perspectives onto the text. It's kind of like what you do when you go overseas, right? We walk through the streets of China, and we are evaluating everything through the lenses of an American, Why do they eat like this? Why did they serve it that way? Why do they treat people in this regard? And you have this experience that you tend to project on it, and there's there's nothing wrong with that unless it prevents you from seeing other things. And part of what I began to be drawn to in these verses was this critical message that I saw as being foundational to this particular text, and I thought what we need to do is not lose sight of the forest through the trees. Let's see some incredible truths that are in these verses. So here's my request to you. Please take those lenses and set them aside. And let's all act as if we're reading this for the very first time. And let's not fall victim to buzzwords. Let's not try to read into, well, did he mean something about uh, egalitarianism or complementarianism by that comment? Or why did he say man and not mankind? He's being... in Let's set those things aside and let's just read the text and just see a different message and not lose sight of some of the other things that God wants to see, okay? That's, that's my disclaimer for us today, okay? We're still going to hit on some things. We've got to get going. Genesis 2. Sorry, a lot to cover. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Let's read at this remarkable discussion on the creation of Eve. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, this is a very powerful and, and really poetic passage in many respects. Now we're not going to really dive into verse 25. I wanted to read it for just the the conclusion of the chapter, Uh, but 25 in my estimation really kind of serves as a transitional statement for what we're going to do next week and kind of setting the context for the fall more than it informs the creation of Eve. So what we're really going to dive into today is 18 through 24 with greater intentionality. So, So how does this passage begin? How does it start? And God saw that it was not good. Now that statement should not be lost on us. What a remarkable turn of events that disrupts the refrain of what we've seen for the first chapter and a half over and over again. These proclamations of it was good. It was good. It was very good. And now all of a sudden it's not good. What has caused it? What has happened? This would jolt the readers, it should cause some sort of awareness in us to stop and anticipate what is being discussed here. And and what we can imagine is it's almost like this image of a a painter stepping away from the canvas and and looking at what has been painted so far and sensing something is missing. Something's wrong. Now, anyone else that walks by would say, but that's a, a masterpiece. Look at how beautiful it is. But to the creator, they would say, no, something is off. Something is still not right. What was it? What was wrong? What we see as this verse concludes here is that it was this word alone. It was not good for man to be alone. Now what do we know about this word alone? It's an interesting word because it can be used in a positive context, right? This, this idea of having a distinction or a separateness is not always bad, especially when used in conjunction with God, right? That he alone is God. There is no one like him. But we also know that there's a negative connotation that comes with this word that speaks more towards isolation, this detachment, this distance. And that's what's being used here. There was something that had created this isolation for man that God said, that is not good. And he elaborates on this sort of loneliness by saying it's not good because there's not a helper suitable for him. Now this is where you get to kind of test perhaps your ability to set aside those lenses because that word helper can be a bit of a buzzword, right? What do we mean by that? Does this imply that God only created woman so that she could help man accomplish whatever it was that he wanted to accomplish? Is that what we project into this word? Well, what we really need to do is just see it in its purest form. It means help. Right? In fact, this word is used in the scriptures in other contexts. It's used to refer to military assistance that one nation might provide to another. It's used oftentimes of God helping those in need. And so it does not in any way apply any sort of message of one that is superior or inferior at all. Right? In the same way that you wouldn't say, well, this nation is superior to the one that needs the helping, or that God is inferior to the one that needs to be helped. All it is saying is that this cannot be done alone. Man needs help. It's a very remarkable statement. And it, and it kind of has this drama that is drawn out, and it, it's drawn out through the naming of the animals. It's really interesting, right? You get this next. Paragraph where now every creature is brought before Adam and he gets to name them. Now, this is a really interesting paragraph because the idea of naming something implies that that person that offers the name has a certain authority or sovereignty over that which is being named. That's just part of the Hebraic way of thinking. And, And so, there is this kind of picture that's being painted here in this paragraph that shows us that this is kind of the fulfillment of one of those earlier promises that. That Adam, that man, would have dominion over the earth, over all these creatures. Now keep that in mind because there's an important contrast that we'll make later when we see the naming of woman. But hold on to that for now, okay? And so all these creatures come before Adam and he names them. And then what do we see is that this paragraph is not just... To reiterate, this promise has been fulfilled, but it is showing us the links to which he is alone because now this problem is restated after that paragraph by saying, again, no suitable helper was found. Now that phrase, a helper that is suitable for him, actually kind of means one that corresponds with, one that is in front of, this similarity. And what we see is that there is this problem that is being presented to mankind. So what does mankind, what does Adam need help with? Well, the best we can conjure up to answer that question at this point is that he needs help to fulfill God's promises. Right? This ability to live into the goodness that God has created, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to multiply, all these things cannot be done on his own. Right? And it means... All of that. It's not just the ability to to have children. It's the ability to enjoy all the goodness of creation. And God's design was that that could not take place alone. And so a special act of creation must unfold. So what does he do? He causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And he takes a rib and he creates woman. Now, I, I personally don't read the taking of Adam's rib uh, literally. I don't believe Adam had one extra rib than what we do, and one was literally removed, but I do believe it is an incredibly powerful image that is used intentionally with very strong implications. So what are those implications? What we see with the fact that a woman is created with the rib of man and of flesh is that there is a sameness now that did not exist in any other capacity of creation. There is a similarity, there is a continuity, there is a unity that exists. And again, in no way does that imply some measure of superior or inferior. There is a sameness, there is a likeness because it is from Adam. And yet, there is distinction. Incredible, important distinction. He doesn't cause Adam to fall into a deep sleep and then just create more Adam's is different, incredibly distinct. So there is this beautiful mixture of similarity and distinction. Now, there's this great book on Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, that's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he's got this great quote that I think helps us really comprehend what's being achieved here, what's unfolding here with the creation of woman. Here's how he says it. He says, It is best to describe this unity by saying that now... He belongs to her because she belongs to him. They are no longer without one another. They are one and yet two. Now listen to this. This becoming one is never the fusion of the two, the abolition of their creatureliness as individuals. It is the utmost possible realization of their belonging to one another which is based directly upon the fact that they are different from one another. I love that. So what he's saying is, is that there's this beautiful unity, this sameness that exists, but because they're distinct, they realize they belong together. It's because they're different that they are drawn into this unity. And when they're drawn together, they don't lose their sense of their creatureliness. They don't lose this individuality. No, it's actually further reemphasizing the need to be together. It's an incredibly important and remarkable statement. And this is why now the naming of woman carries such weight, because of this amazing act of creation, God now brings woman to Adam in the same way that he brought the animals. And now listen. Now, does he name her? Yes. But does it carry the same level of authority that maybe we saw in the earlier paragraph with the animals? Well, I would say what's really happening here is the contrast. With the animals, it was just secondhand, right? Whatever he called them, that was their name. But when he sees Eve, when he sees woman, what does he say? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she will be called woman. A totally different reaction that reveals gratitude, that reveals praise, that reveals this poetic response that affirms the creation of woman. And so this distinction of who she is and how she's been created is celebrated. It's not minimized. It's not diminished. And so where I want to stop for a moment was when we begin to read through these early few verses here in Genesis chapter 2, is that there is an undeniable emphasis that woman is held in high regard. And so I want to speak to all the ladies that are here today. And I want you to know that if you have ever gone through a moment in your life where someone made you feel less than because you're a woman, whether that's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's with peers or, heaven forbid, the church, hear me. You are valued. You are distinct. God created you in a beautiful and meaningful way that is different than anything else. And you need to know that you are loved. You need to know that you are valued because you are woman. Because it is impossible to experience the goodness of the promises of God independent of male and female. We need each other. And so if you've ever gone through any of those heartaches or those comments, then hear me today, God loves you and values you and created you distinctly and uniquely woman. And that needs to be celebrated and not minimized. Now with this amazing creation, we now begin to see the remedy of this loneliness. And it leads us to the formation of marriage. And it's very clearly explained here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and they become one flesh. So you can't read this passage and not talk about marriage. It's as clearly stated as, as you can have. But I want you to hold on to this for a moment because when we talk about loneliness, this passage is gonna show us this is so much more than just being married or single. So while we talk about marriage for a moment, we're gonna to get towards the end here, the greater picture of what's really being stated here. So. So hear me, loneliness is not just about am I married or not. But that being said, let's talk for a moment about marriage. What has just taken place here is this incredible statement of the importance of this relationship. And the importance of it is exemplified by two things. Number one, you're going to leave father and mother. Now to the Israelite community that that obviously um, held this tradition, that was a strong statement that had such high regard For their parents. But think about the implications. This this old identity, this original birth that defines you, you're going to forsake that. You're going to leave that. You're going to abandon that for a new life, a new oneness, a new creation. This relationship will be the most important relationship. It is one where you will be united with your wife. And that word united means to to cling, to cleave to. In fact, it's used in one passage in Job to refer to skin clinging to bone. It's that sort of connectivity that is being referenced here. It conjures up this idea of passion and permanence, this oneness that exists between man and woman. And so you have this incredible picture of marriage. The importance of it, the significance of it. And so you read Genesis 2, 18 through 24, and you can't help but stand in awe. All these ideals of of what it seems to suggest about the creation of man and woman and their relationship with one another, the, the beauty of marriage and how that relationship can maybe unfold. And yet my question for us today is, how in the world do we make sense of such ideals in such a broken world? What do we do practically with Genesis 2? Because if we're all honest with each other, we can read those ideals and rarely experience them in our own lives or experience them in the world and the culture within which we live, a culture where we see marriages fail. We see the tension and the animosity of of genders between each other. We see the question about my gender identity and my orientation and how marriage should be defined we see all these different questions swirling around us and so how do we make sense of genesis 2 in a broken world let's remember a couple of things that i would suggest to us this morning the first is is that we need to always remember that the scriptures informs our reality our reality doesn't inform the scripture so when we go through life, and we begin to see things that we observe on uh, personal experiences or in culture, we see all these different things, and we begin to project that back onto the text and say, well, this must be outdated or irrelevant. We're going backwards. That, that's not how it works to have a biblically guided life, right? We let Genesis 2 inform our understanding. We, we don't let our understanding influence Genesis 2. And so how do we do that? But How do we do that in a meaningful way? Well, here's what I think is important for us to remember. When we read Genesis 2, we have to remember it's before the curse. It's before the fall. All right, we're going to get into all the details of the fall next week and, and start to really unpack the implications of it. But, but we must never forget we live on this side of the curse. And so when we begin to struggle with these issues, Right? And we face these challenges that threaten these ideals of either how we view ourselves or how we view the other gender or how we understand marriage. My question that I think should be somewhat of a governing premise that we should all kind of refer back to is this. Does your position, does your answer, does your view, does your response, does it exalt the curse or does it exalt the promise? And we should all strive to exalt the promises of God. Right? The distortion of these things where you see patriarchy run amok or you see an antagonism towards towards other genders or you see a distortion of marriage. Those things exalt the curse. We are called to be different. We are called to exalt the promise. How do we do that? What's the best way to do that? Because the reality is, y'all, we're all going to suffer from this Or contribute to this in some capacity. Marriages are going to fail. And they're going to fail because of some things that maybe you chose to do or not do for your spouse. Or your spouse is going to do something that's going to impact your ability to sustain that marriage. Or you're going to watch mom and dad and see their marriage crumble and fall. And you're going to think to yourself, well what in the world is that about? We're going to see these questions play themselves out over and over and over again. And so my answer to all that today is that our best ability to exalt the promises of God are to stand firm on his design and on his purpose. Which means, number one, we need to not ever forget that we live in a broken world. Things are going to crumble. Now, we don't need to condone failing marriages. We don't need to minimize it. We don't need to... um, ignore it or neglect it, but it shouldn't surprise us. Brokenness and sin is still going to have its way. That's the reality of our life, which is really part of what should prompt us to maintain this posture of believers that oftentimes we so frequently forget, which is one of the best postures that we can maintain, is to remember that the fulfillment of all these promises that we see in the Scripture will only come when Jesus returns. That our true Hope is not in this life, but the life to come. And we need to carry ourselves in that demeanor, right, that people could look at us and see that we truly believe there will be a day where marriages don't fail, where there is this beauty between man and woman as God designed according to his amazing creative work, and we're going to celebrate that, and so we long for it, and we point others to that hope. And so we have the opportunity when these things struggle, when these struggles occur, do we press into these promises or do we run away from them? We press into them. We know that they're going to fail, but we never lose our resolve to cling to them, which means we don't hold resentment towards a spouse that hurt us and leaves, right? We don't carry animosity to people that, that see things differently if they don't truly follow what the scriptures teach. We don't, we don't Never, we, we don't fail to seek forgiveness when we're the ones that create that brokenness. We, we constantly come back to trying to resolve and strengthen the promises that only God has provided. And so, how do we do that? How do we do that in the most effective way? Well, my suggestion for us today and where I want to conclude this is to remember that what's really happened here and what is so remarkable about Genesis 2 is that we just had this incredible picture painted for us that is going to point us not just to the relationship between a man and a woman, but the relationship between Christ and the church. It is one of the chief images that God uses for us to understand this gospel. Paul elaborates on it in Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands and wives and says, I'm actually talking about something much deeper here. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And what you and I can begin to see is that the way that we cling to the promises of God and deal with the failures of a cursed, broken, and sinful world is to commune with one another in the church, to see that Christ's love for his people is like skin clinging to bones. He will be united with us with such passion and such permanence that nothing can separate us from his love. So when we come together on a Sunday morning and we sing of his promises or we meet in each other's homes and we're going through these challenges and these inconveniences, we get to look to our right and look to our left and see brothers and sisters who have overcome these things and we can encourage one another and say, God's promises will not fail. He has not left us alone. And Jesus assures that. That is the whole message of the gospel. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I am with you. You are not alone. That's the message of Genesis 2. You know, when we were going on this trip, I, I told you that was a theme that obviously resonated with me and part of what made it so impactful is I got to share these experiences with my two kids and my wife and being mindful of all the other people that helped make it possible. But obviously one of the greatest most impactful experiences for us was my son, Wu. And just thinking about all that he had faced in his short 21 months on this world, seeing his life and getting to hear more stories and understand more, seeing the struggles he had already had to face, the obstacles he had already had to overcome, and the way that he as a young infant had figured out how to survive. And were people around him, were they there, did they help? Yes. But so much of that he faced alone. And the message for this trip, this little adventure that we went on, was to come into his life, pick him up into our arms, and say, you are found. You're safe. You are loved. You're not alone. And you never will. That was what impacted us all so much over the last two weeks. And of all the things that we could discuss on Genesis 2, that's the one I believe God wants all of us to hear this morning. I don't know what season of life you're going through today. I don't know what inconveniences you're trying to navigate. I don't know what burdens you're trying to carry. But I believe with all my heart, God has brought you here today to whisper to you again and to penetrate within your soul to hear once again you are found, you are safe, you're loved. You are not alone and you never will be. This is the essence of the gospel. Loneliness has been defeated. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you mindful of these passages that come with such weight and come with such significance that many times they create questions they create confusion they they can often be mishandled or misrepresented and father we acknowledge that we want to hold them in a sensitivity and a truthfulness that awakens our hearts to better understand you and the life that you desire for us and so father may we surrender any preconceived ideas or perceptions and just open our hearts to you and celebrate today this unbelievable reminder that we have the hope that you have not left us alone. We find the reminder of that promise in the way in which we treat one another, the way in which we love one another within the church, the way in which we encourage one another of, of Christ and what he has done for us and so may we be able to praise you today because of that gift. May we be able to celebrate this unbelievable reality that you have found us, you have saved us, you love us, and you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, may we worship you with a fullness of heart because we know loneliness has been defeated. We thank you for all that you are and all that you've done and all that you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.